Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. I'm your host, Sarah Sin, tackling horror movies, peeling back the layers, and taking a deeper dive into them. Again, on the show, I don't just discuss my love of horror movies. I like to bring in the aspect and perspective of horror and history, how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am a psychology major, I like to bring this aspect and perspective in as well and see how the horror movie I'm focusing on reflects psychology and mental health in any way. So this is my last movie for the month of February and the theme of love, crushes, and Tom Atkins. But don't worry, I'll cover other Tom Atkins movies in the future, I promise. But I did want to say that I had a lot of fun this month with Tom Atkins movies um, because I do love Tom Atkins. He is a horror icon. And I was thinking about it too. I was like, the only movie that I covered this month that was a first-time watch for me was actually Bruiser. Um, the other three I've seen before. Okay, so what I usually try to do is since I have I usually watch four movies a month for the show is I try to pick two movies that I've seen before so I can kind of see them from like a completely different perspective and then I try to pick two movies I haven't seen yet or you know I've never seen before kind of with fresh eyes and a new lens I don't always get a chance to do this you know it's just something I try to aim for every month is like two movies I've seen before two movies I haven't seen before um and like I said this month I ended up doing one movie I've never seen, three I have seen. So it's just something I aim for, not something I always do, but it is something I'm always trying to aim for. And, and another reason is because I've seen a lot of horror movies, but I haven't seen all horror movies. You know, there's so many horror movies I haven't seen, even though I've seen a huge chunk of them. So this actually gives me a chance to see a lot of those movies I've always wanted to see, but just never got around to seeing it. So that's why I try to do two I've seen, two I haven't seen. So it's kind of interesting that this month was three movies you know I've seen and one I haven't seen so the funny thing too was I was thinking about is that next month I'm actually it's gonna be the opposite so I'm gonna be watching three movies I've never seen and watching one I've seen so it's kind of funny that February and March are kind of flipped in that way so it's gonna be kind of interesting I guess is what I'm trying to say sorry anyways so with that said I wanted to say that next month March with it being both you know Irish Heritage Month and St. Patrick's Day I decided the theme for March will be Beware of Irish Folklore and an Irish Redhead too. So what I'm going to be doing is watching movies that focus on certain aspects, I guess, of Irish folklore. So things that you've heard in Irish folklore, you know, such as there's leprechauns, there's fairies, there's changelings, there's also the banshee. So just things like that is like the whole idea of what I want to do for next month. So not... It's not so much that I want to do specifically Irish horror movies. Some of them are Irish horror movies, but I was I decided I wanted to choose movies that focus specifically on Irish folklore and an aspect of Irish folklore, you know, or a specific creature or something like that that is Irish folklore. That's pretty much what I'm trying to get at. So I'm really excited for next month because I am Irish, you know, and I actually did grow up on some of these stories and legends. And so it's going to be a lot of fun for me to actually be able to research more into these, you know, this folklore and these legends and all these creatures, because I actually really do enjoy doing stuff like that. So like when I have covered movies in the past that have a certain legend around it or it's a specific kind of creature or it's part of a folklore or part of a culture, I really enjoy doing the research on it. So while I'm talking about the movie, I can also explain to you guys the history behind it. So this is going to be a lot of fun for me because not only have I grown up with some of these stories from my Irish grandfather, I've also get a chance to do more research, which is something I actually really do enjoy doing so I can bring more 
information on these different creatures and folklore and legends and the history behind them. So I'm really excited for next month. Um, not only because it's St. Patrick's Day, but because it is, you know, Irish month and I'm going to be covering Irish folklore. So anyways, I'm going to move on to my last Tom Atkins movie of February with 1986 Night of the Creeps, directed by Frank Decker, starring Jason Lively as Chris Romero, Steve Marshall as JC, which is James Carpenter Hooper, Jill Whitlow as Cynthia Cronenberg, Tom Atkins as Detective Ray Cameron, Wally Taylor as Detective Landis. Bruce Solomon as Sergeant Ramey, and then Alan Kayser as Brad, which he didn't get a cool last name. So for horror history, I think a lot of this definitely focuses on like the fear of the other. Like a lot of movies, especially with um, some of the movies I, I was covering um, in like the 50s, is like the the fear of like someone from another country coming and infiltrating us and like taking over our minds, trying to make us conform to their ways. So even though this is a movie set in the 80s, um, it does have a lot, it does have actually a very um, 50 style to it. So I'm not surprised that you can pick up on the fear of the other. It's like the other country, they're going to come over, they're going to take over us kind of idea or, you know, fear. It also reflects a lot on the actual horror genre in general. So like I said, it's an 80s style horror movie or 80s horror movie in the style of like a 50s B flick. And it also parodies and um takes things from horror movies that have come before it so it plays homage to other horror movies that have come before it it pokes fun at you know um cliches and it uses um famous directors as the last names of their characters and things like that so not only does it um reflect on the horror genre the history of horror genre but it's also playing homage to all those movies that did come before it so it's a I really enjoy this movie for, um, that's one of the reasons why I enjoy this movie so much. So for psychology and mental health, we got depression, uh, grief, guilt, a dirty little secret, um, coping mechanisms, I would say substance use disorder, which is alcoholism and actually smoking cigarettes is, um, considered a type of addiction, revenge, repressed feelings, defense mechanisms, and sacrifice. So what is this movie about? In 1959, an alien experiment gone wrong crash lands on Earth, infecting a young man named Johnny. Fast forward to 1986, Chris and JC stumble upon a cryogenically frozen male when trying to perform a pledge prank. Accidentally unfreezing the man, the boys do not realize that they just let loose alien slug brain parasites that rampage the college campus. And it's up to Chris and JC, along with heartbroken alcoholic chain-smoking detective Ray Cameron to stop this alien invasion in time for the students to make it to the formal. Moving on to the subgenre. I would definitely put Night of the Creeps in the comedy horror subgenre. It not only pays homage to horror movie greats, it also um, parodies horror movie cliches and pokes fun at the horror genre in a very tasteful and respectful way. This movie is... <laughs> It's a wild ride and a lot of fun, not to mention entertaining as hell. Yes, it's cheesy and over the top, but that's what gives this movie charm and personality, in my opinion. So, like I said, I would definitely put this one in the um, comedy horror subgenre, so I'm going to go over that definition. Comedy horror. This subgenre blends horror and humor together beautifully in such a way to scare the audience, yet make them laugh at the same time. These films tend to break the ice in the horror aspect and help make the movie fun and enjoyable. Sometimes the over-the-top gore and kills are what makes the movie humorous, not taking themselves seriously. 
And sometimes a subgenre spoofs another horror movie or genre to make the movie more laughable and entertaining. These movies are a great gateway horror to ease some people into the horror genre. So the first thing I definitely want to go over is how this movie pays homage to the horror greats and the horror movies that come before it. You know, from the character names to the storyline to the cliches, this movie, um, you can tell, is a love letter to horror movies that came before it. So basically what I'm going to do is go over some of these and explain them. Um, I'm really going to just focus on the names because there's a lot of name drops in this movie. And I'm just going to explain where they come from and who the person is and how they are a staple in the horror genre. So first off, our story takes place at Corman University. Many of us horror fans know who Roger Corman is, which is where the university gets its name from. He's directed many horror classics such as The Wasp Women, 1959, The Mask of Red Death, 1964, The Trip, 1967, and Frankenstein Unbound, which was 1990. But mostly he's known for producing horror films and he's done a lot of like cult classics and underrated gems, as I would say. He produced Humanoids from the Deep, which is 1980, Galaxy of Terror, which is 1981, The Nest, which is 1987, Carnosaur, which was 1993, and even as recently as Dino Shark, which was 2010. And he's produced many, many, many more horror movies. Roger Corman is the king of like low budget independent films. And all of us mutants who watched The Last Drive-In got to see him as a guest for when they covered the movies um, Little Shop of Horrors, which came out in the 60s, and Humanoids from the Deep, which came out in the 80s, um, which I'm pretty sure was the season three finale. So that was a lot of fun for us. So we all know who Roger Corman is. Well, most of us know who Roger Corman is. Like I said, king of independent, low-budget films. Um, he's directed many, um, but he's mostly known for producing. And this is who the actual um, Corman University is named after. Then I started picking up on what, well, not really picking up on. It's pretty much like right there in your face is that all of our characters or our main characters where you actually hear a name are pretty much named after directors, um, horror movie directors. So I'm going to go over each one of these and, you know, the movies they've done and their significance to the horror genre. So our lead character is named Chris Romero. And all of us zombie fans know he is named after the late, great George A. Romero. This is the man who gave us Night of the Living Dead, 1968, Dawn of the Dead, 1978, and Day of the Dead, 1985. But the truth is, he's actually directed many amazing non-zombie movies. Um, he's done a lot um, breaking free from the zombie subgenre, such as The Crazies, 1973, Martin, 1976, the Dark Half, 1993, and Bruiser, which was 2000 that I covered earlier this month. So the zombie subgenre we know today, you know, Walking Dead, the Walking Dead, you know, they eat people, you need to shoot them in the brain in order to kill them, came from the mind of George A. Romero. Although there have been zombie movies before Night of the Living Dead, Romero is the man who defined the zombie subgenre and structured it to what we know you know, what it is today, like to this day. Without Romero, we wouldn't have The Walking Dead, Return of the Living Dead, or World War Z. So this is the man, like I said, there were zombie movies beforehand, but he's the one who really defined what the zombie subgenre is. You know, this is the man that took the word zombie or took the idea of a zombie and then changed it 
changed the mythology behind it, and he's the one who really created the zombie subgenre. Moving on to Chris's best friend, JC, which his name is actually James Carpenter Hooper for John Carpenter and Toby Hooper. So Carpenter or John Carpenter is the one who uh, brought us Michael Myers. He is a very well-known horror director and brought us classics of the genre, like such as Halloween, 1978, The Thing, 1982, They Live, 1988, and In the Mouth of Madness, 1994. So Carpenter has made like many movies from different subgenres. Like this is one of the things I really love about John Carpenter is that he doesn't seem to stick with just one um, subgenre when it comes to the horror genre. Like he does tend to stick with the horror genre itself, but he picks and chooses from different subgenres within the horror genre, and he really delves into like these different ones, such as like slasher flick, supernatural horror, psychological horror, sci-fi horror, like. I would say he's a man of many hats when it comes to the subgenres of horror. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about John Carpenter as a horror movie director is that he doesn't just stick with one certain subgenre. He likes to go and explore, you know, different subgenres within the horror genre is what I'm trying to say about John Carpenter. So moving on to the other part of JC's name, which is Hooper, and it's for Toby Hooper. And he's responsible for bringing us Leatherface. He directed the cult classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974, along with The Fun House, 1981, Poltergeist, 1982, and one of my actual like horror movie favorites, The Mangler, 1995. And Toby Hooper is one of those directors I feel is like underrated and kind of underappreciated as a horror director. You know, any movie I've seen of his, I've really enjoyed. And yes... The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the greatest horror movies of all time, but that doesn't mean that all the other movies are bad. Like, I just feel like he came out with a bang with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that any movie that came after that um, didn't seem to live up to the standards of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But the truth is he's directed many great horror movies that are staples within the horror genre. Like I said, like he... um, he directed Salem's Lot, Poltergeist, and he even um, directed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and all of these are great horror movies. And I really believe that Toby Hooper is an amazing horror director. I just believe that he's a little under underrated and underappreciated because of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that every movie that came out after him, everyone was trying to compare it to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they weren't. Toby Hooper really tried to explore other areas within the horror subgenre the way that John Carpenter did. You know, he didn't just stick with slasher flick or grindhouse or splatter, which would be like what the Texas Chainsaw Massacre would be put under. He also tried to explore all different angles. Like Salem's Law is a vampire subgenre. Poltergeist is like supernatural horror subgenre. So he really tried to delve deep into different types of horror movies or horror subgenres within the horror genre, if that makes sense. So anyways, moving on. Um, Chris's love interest is Cynthia Cronenberg, and as we all know, she's named after the body horror master David Cronenberg. He's directed many, many horror classics, such as Scanners, 1981, Videodrome, 1983, The Fly, 1986, and Dead Ringers, 1988. And I truly believe we would not have the body horror subgenre if not for David Cronenberg. 
he loves to like intertwine the human body, the psychological technology, infection and mutation, and just weave it all together to bring us horror that shows like how our bodies can reject us and the horrors like technology can do to us. And as I said, like he really is the master at body horror. And again, I truly believe if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have the body horror subgenre. Like he really, really brought us a whole new subgenre when he started directing horror movies. And he has directed other movies that are actually aren't horror movies or in the horror subgenre or any horror genre. But the movies that he did bring us within the horror genre are body horror movies or the the term we now know as body horror. David Cronenberg is really the one who brought us these kind of movies and they're really brilliant movies. Like he's very smart and and really does try to dive into the scientific facts within the movie. So even though these movies are make believe and they're fake, he really does try to research the science behind them in order to make his movies more realistic. So Cronenberg is another master of horror. Like his movies are amazing. His movies are classics. And I love, I really do love that Cynthia is named after David Cronenberg. So anyways, our hero, I would say, um, is Tom Atkins' character, which is Detective Ray Cameron. And he's named after James Cameron. So at first I'm like, James Cameron? You mean Titanic and Avatar? And then I com- I just completely spaced that he directed, you know, a few horror movies before he directed Titanic, you know? And he mostly, I, I noticed he kind of really stuck with like the sci-fi horror subgenre. You know, he brought us The Terminator, 1984, Aliens, 1986, The Abyss, 1989, and Terminator 2, Judgment Day, 1991. And before all those and like winning Oscars and, you know, being this like really amazing director, like I said, not only in the sci-fi horror subgenre, but in like the movie genre in general. He actually directed the underrated sequel to 1978's Piranha with Piranha 2 The Spawning, which was something I didn't even know. Um, I actually was researching him for um, to find some of the movies because, like I said, I totally blanked that um, he directed horror movies before Titanic and Avatar. And then when I saw that, I was like, that is so cool. He directed an, a totally underrated gem, a cult classic, which is Piranha 2 The Spawning. And I mean... As I'm thinking about too, like he re- he directed one of actually no he's directed two of the best sequels I think ever, which is Aliens and Terminator 2: Judgment Day, which a lot of people like myself say is better than its predecessor. Like Aliens, I love Alien. Don't get me wrong, it's a great movie. It's a wonderful slow burn. You're really trying to figure out what's going on, but I do think Aliens is I would put Aliens before Alien and same with Terminator 2. I love Terminator 2 Judgment Day. It's actually my favorite out of the Terminator movies. So it's kind of interesting that James Cameron brought us two of like one of the most amazing sequels out there. Okay, I'm going to move on. Next is um, Detective Landis, named after John Landis. And he's directed like many horror movies, such as An American Werewolf in London, 1981, Twilight Zone the Movie, 1983, and Innocent Blood, 1992. But he's done much more than just horror movies. Not only has John Landis like brought us one of the greatest werewolf movies of all time, he's directed many classic comedies, like such as National Lampoon's Animal House, 1978. I absolutely love that movie. It's one of my favorite comedy movies. The Blues Brothers, 1980. Three Amigos, 1986. And Coming to America, 1988. 
So the one thing I do love about John Land is that he doesn't just stick with one genre. He enjoys them all. But I will say that when he decides to do horror, he knows how to do it right. And the truth is he knows how to do a comedy right too. But I definitely would put his directing of horror, the horror genre, above his directing of comedy. Because I'm biased and I'm a huge horror movie fan. So anyways, moving on. Um, the next um, character we have is Sergeant Raimi. And who's he named after? The amazing Sam Raimi. He's the one who gave us the Evil Dead trilogy. So Evil Dead, 1981. The Evil Dead 2, 1987. And Army of Darkness, 1992. But he's also directed the um, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man trilogy. Spider-Man, 2002. Spider-Man 2, 2004, and Spider-Man 3, 2007. So the man has brought us not only one, but two classic movie trilogies. Like, And to top that off, he also directed Ash vs. the Evil Dead TV series, which sadly ended after three seasons. I was pretty upset about that because I actually really loved the show. But it was awesome to see Sam Raimi team up with Bruce Campbell again. So I really did enjoy the show. I really wish they had continued it, but that's okay, you know. We at least got three seasons of Ash versus the Evil Dead. So like I said, Sam Raimi is an amazing director all around. Um, like I said, he brought us the Evil Dead trilogy and the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man trilogy. So he, again, brought us two amazing, like, classic movie trilogies. So I'm going to move on. We also have the character of the janitor. Um, his name is Mr. Minor. And this one actually took me a minute because I was kind of spacing out on the name Minor. You know, I was kind of like, okay, this one's not really popping into my brain. Maybe I need to do a little research and try to figure this out because I heard the word minor and I was like, his name is Mr. Minor. I know this has some kind of significance. All right, Sarah, like really think about this. Um, go do some research, figure this out. And he's named after S Steve Minor. Duh. Like, duh, Sarah. And um, this is the man who um, directed some, you know, famous horror movie, like franchise sequels. So like he's directed... Um, Friday the 13th, part two and three, which was 81 and 82. Um, he also directed Halloween H2O 20 years later, 1998. So he got to direct um, some sequels within very famous horror franchises. But he also directed um, the cult classic or a few cult classics, such as House 1985, Warlock, which is 1989, and one of my favorite like aquatic horror movies, which is Lake Placid 1999. So I'm sorry this one took me a minute to try to realize, like, who he's, Mr. Minor was named after, but it is Steve Minor who has directed, of course, many horror movies. So we have a few, like, police officers that you hear their names, but I don't think you actually really see them, or if you do, it's very brief. They're not main characters, they're extras, but their names are mentioned, like, either over the radio or during conversation, and again, they are um, named after horror movie directors, so... We have Officer Wallace, which I figured out was named after Tommy Lee Wallace. He directed Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, 1982, Fright Night Part 2, 1988, the TV miniseries, you know, movie It, which was 1990, and Vampires, uh, Los Muertos, uh, 2002. So I am a huge Halloween 3, Season of the Witch fan, um, which also stars um, the amazing Tom Atkins. So it was pretty cool for me that they that this movie included Wallace, the man who did bring us this underrated and awesome Halloween sequel. He was another one that kind of took me a minute because at first, um, when I heard Wallace, I immediately thought D Wallace, who's not a director, 
but she's definitely, I would say, a horror um, movie scream queen. She starred in a lot of horror movies. You know, she starred in Cujo um, and The Howling. So she's been in the horror movie genre. So at first I thought her, but then I was like, well, that doesn't really fit with what they're doing in this movie. They're doing horror movie directors. So I did have to kind of do a little research and I put in Wallace and then Tommy Lee Wallace came up and then I was like, oh my gosh, yes, that makes more sense than D Wallace. So the character of Officer Wallace named after Tommy Lee Wallace, who has directed um, some, you know, very cult classic horror movies within the horror movie genre. Next is Officer T for Lewis T. And um, he's directed two Stephen King adaptations, which is Cujo, 1983, and Cat's Eyes, 1985, and the underrated but awesome nature horror movie, Alligator, 1980. And again, in all honesty, I don't know much about this director like I actually had to this is one that I actually had to look up the name like it didn't really ring a bell at all a couple of the ones I just talked about that I said I had a hard time with like they were sitting in my brain and like I'm like I know I've heard this name but they weren't like ringing a bell like I just I couldn't really place them this is definitely a director that I really didn't know the name Teague at all so I really had to like research it and figure it out so i am sorry like i don't know all the horror movie directors you know i've seen again i've seen a lot of horror movies i can't always place a director with a movie so this was one that i actually didn't even know about or didn't not not that i didn't know about it because i have seen some of these movies i the name just didn't ring a bell when i heard it and i really did have to research it for myself so next we have um officer dante and this character is named after director joe dante he brought us one of the, again, one of the greatest werewolf movies of all time, The Howling, 1981. And I know there's this debate that goes on that's like, which one's better, you know, An American Werewolf in London or The Howling, because they both came out the same year, which, you know, which one's the better werewolf movie? So, and this is what I always say within this debate. I like The Howling. Like, I like The Howling better than American Werewolf in London. So if I had to pick one, it's The Howling. but I think that an American Werewolf in London has a better transformation scene. So that's just my pick. That's what I always say when the debate comes up. But anyways, Joe Dante's also directed, you know, other horror movies besides The Howling. Um, he directed Piranha, 1978, Gremlins, 1984, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, 1990, and more recently, Nightmare Cinema, 2018. And I'm still holding out that he will come out with a Gremlins 3 one day. So, Joe Dante, please bring us Gremlins 3. I actually loved Gremlins 2, the new batch. And I will say that I'm sorry, but I'm one of those strange people that prefer Gremlins 2 over the first one. So, the last officer we have, or the last character I'm going to go over, is Officer De Palma. And this is someone that, again, I've heard the name. I know De Palma. I've heard the name, but I actually couldn't place it with the movies until I pulled his name up when I was on IMDb. You know, I looked up Robert De Palma and he's directed, of course, many horror movies, but it was one that like, I just couldn't, I know the name Robert De Palma, but I couldn't place what movies he's actually directed. So I did have to pull him up on IMDb. So he, um, you know, he brought us, um, Carrie 1976, The Fury 1978 and Dressed to Kill 1980. But again, he's also directed other movies outside the horror genre. I mean, he's the man who directed Scarface with Al Pacino, 1983, uh, Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise, 1996, and The Black Dahlia, you know, 2006. So one thing I did notice about his movies is that he's, it's, they're visually stunning. Like, 
Carrie's prom massacre scene is visually stunning. And the use of color and the use of the color red within that scene is just visually stunning. That's all I can say. It's like they're visually stunning. And he knows what he's doing when he uses like color symbolism. And Dress to Kill, like it really reminds you of like an Italian Giallo film. And I think that definitely was intentional was that he was trying to bring, you know, Giallo back. And he really, he, his um, style was very much like that. And that's what I liked about Dress to Kill is the whole idea is that while you're watching it, you think you're watching Italian Giallo, but it's really Robert De Palma's film. So again, he was one that I, I knew the name. I just couldn't place with the movies. And again, like, I'm going to be honest, like, I know a lot of horror movie directors. I know a lot of them. I've heard their names. I can play some with movies and some I can't. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm a human being. I don't know them all. Again, I've seen a lot of horror movies, but I haven't seen them all. And I'm still trying to get through them. So I will say, though, sorry, before I move on, there was one more name that I wanted to mention, um, and it was Hollister, which is the character of the scientist. And the only thing that came up when I was searching the name Hollister was Jimmy Hollister from, Cine um, sorry, Sinister Cinema, like a TV show that was in 1973 and 1987. But there's also James Hollister, which is a character in Firestarter, 1984. And Ted Hollister, a character in Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, which is 1988. So I don't know where that name came from. I don't know if that's actually a horror movie director that I can't think of. But that was a name that did pop up really quickly. And I couldn't place who it was. I had to look up Hollister horror movies. And this is what came up for me. So if you know the director that it might be, um, taking after that'd be great let me know because that was one that like popped up I wanted to mention it but I actually didn't know where it came from so anyways that's the names of like the horror homages that I picked up on within like the names um there's probably more again and you know but those are the ones I really caught on to when it came to like hearing a name and going oh that's significant to the horror genre that's significant as a horror movie director you know, again, there's more horror, you know, movie homages. You know, there's a bathroom scene with JC and on the wall is written, Go Monster Squad. You know, there's things like that within the movie. They poke fun at different horror movie cliches and a lot of things like that. But what I really wanted to go over was the names because that's what really like stuck out for me as I'm watching this movie was like I heard a name as soon as I heard like Carpenter Hooper. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's John Carpenter and Toby Hooper. So things like that. So that's what I wanted to talk about how, you know, this is horror history like this movie pays homage to the horror movies that came before it so the horror history part of this movie is that it really really picks up on the horror movies that came before it and that's definitely something I really do love about this movie okay so the next thing I'd like to go over is I kind of want to do like a little bit of like a character analysis so even though like our main character is Chris and then like we have his best friend JC and his love interest Cynthia I feel like this movie really is about Detective Ray Cameron, and it's really his story and his journey that we're watching. You know, this is a man who's filled with guilt and grief over a lost loved one from like 30 years ago, who lives alone, seems to drink his feelings away, and uses humor and sarcasm as like his coping mechanism, defense mechanism. So what my plan is, is to go over a few scenes and then try to explain a little more in depth about like Ray's story and his journey and like why I you know, feel this way or what I'm trying to analyze for my character analysis. So the opening scene, we see one naked alien uh, carrying a canister and two naked aliens chasing him. The one naked alien manages to get rid of the canister, shooting it into space where it hurtles towards Earth. 
now um, we're at a sorority house, 1959, everything's shot in black and white. At one sorority, the girls are like hanging out. One's on the phone. She's talking about her friend Pam and how she broke up with Ray, the policeman, and is now going on a date with Johnny. So Johnny picks up Pam, takes her to Lover's Lane. They're in the car, they're looking at the stars, and then someone kind of comes by with a flash, uh, flashlight. And it's Ray. Hey, haven't you kids heard the radio? There's some nut bar on the loose. So I said, Pam? Pam, hello, Ray. Ray, just go home, will you? Just go home. Johnny, you know that cop? Pam, he's just someone from my past. So then Johnny and Pam, they see a meteorite, decide to go look for it. They park the car. Um, Johnny gets out, tells Pam to stay in the car while he goes looking for the meteorite. Pam, while she's still in the car, hears on the radio that some guy escaped a uh, Crestridge mental institution, killed four orderlies, and is now, like, roaming around with an axe. Um, and they said, like, heading west on Route 66 towards um, Corman University. And she realizes she's on Route 66, and she looks up at the sign that says, like, towards Corman University. So Johnny finds the meteorite, which is the alien canister. It breaks. A slug jumps into his mouth. And then we see someone with an axe head towards the car. And then the act, the guy, like, lifts the axe, swings it, and it fades to black. And now we're at Pledge Week 1986. So when we're watching the opening scene, we don't realize at the time that the character of Ray the Policeman is actually, like, Detective Ray Cameron. That's his past self. So next scene is when Detective Ray Cameron, or I'm just going to call him Ray, um, he's called to the scene of two dead bodies found in the cryogenics lab. Um, which is the same lab that um, Chris and JC stumbled upon and actually let the frozen man loose when they were trying to do their pledge prank. So cop one, Detective Cameron, Ray, no, Bullwinkle the Moose, thrill me. Landis, hey Ray, you're looking at your actual cryogenics lab. They've had some kid's body on ice here since 1959. Ray, what is this, a homicide or a bad B movie? What's that? Landis, was a grad student. Lab technician. He was scheduled to work here this evening. Ray. Looks like he worked a little too hard, huh? I suppose Rip Van Winkle would be the other body? Where is it? Cop one. The other body isn't here, sir. Ray. What, did he have a date? What do you mean he isn't here? The coroner. Jake, did you take it? Jake. I just got here. Ray. I'm confused. I was told there were two bodies. Ramy. Ramy. Yes, sir? Ray. First, knock it off with the yes sir shit. Second, since when does a desk sergeant show up on a call? Third, you told me there were two bodies. Now I only see the one. You do know the difference, don't you? It wasn't on the sergeant exam or anything. But if you use your fingers, it's real easy. See? One, two, piece of cake. Ramy, yes sir. Well, there were two bodies, but there was a dispatch problem, you know? Ray, where were you guys? Cop one, well sir, there was a dispatch problem. Ray, a dispatch problem? Ramy, anyway, look, I came down here and met the night janitor. Ray, and you got a statement, of course. This shit is getting old real fast. You know, I was awakened out of a real pleasant dream to come down here. You gonna straighten it out, Ramy, or am I gonna have to play poo patrol with your nightstick? Ramy, I screwed up. I sent two rookies down here on the case like this, and uh, at some point, they both went to the, uh, they went to the bathroom. Ray, all right, that's fine. Candy ass, but fine. There's just one minor problem. 
Corpses that have been dead for 27 years do not get up and go for a walk by themselves. So this is where, like, you can kind of see the sarcasm in Ray's voice, like, in the way he talks to other officers in the scene. Like, and this is the way he talks to everybody, like, he encounters even Chris and JC when they first meet him. So next, I'm going to go over the scene where Ray takes Chris to his place. Like, he pours him, pours him both a drink, um, and he talks about, like, his old loved one. And this is where you learn, like, you really learn who Ray is and why he acts, kind of, like, acts the way he does. Like, his humor, sarcasm, like, the standoffishness he has. You know, he doesn't like to put up his feelings on the table. You know, he's this kind of guy. Like, he has completely a, a wall up. Like, he always has his guard up. But this is the scene where he kind of opens up to Chris, and then you start to realize what's really going on within him and why he is the way he is. Ray, tell me something, Spanky. Did you have a high school sweetheart? Chris, maybe. Ray, well, uh, whatever happened to her? Chris, I don't know. I blew it. She decided we didn't ever need to talk again and went on with her life, I guess. Why? Ray, I had a high school sweetheart. Chris, so what happened to her? Ray, I don't know. I blew it. She decided we didn't ever need to talk again. Me, I became a cop. I've been a rookie about two weeks when we got the call. Highway patrol. They saw a car on the side of the road. They called it in. We responded. It was a couple. The guy's body was found in the woods 20 yards from the car. My partner found him. I found the girl. I found her in the car and on the road and in the woods. Your high school sweetheart went on with her life. Mine got hacked up by a nutcase with an axe. But that's not the fun part. The fun part's what happened next. Chris, what happened next? Ray, guess. Chris, the police found him? Ray, close. I found him. It wasn't what you called routine police work either. Chris, what would you call it? Ray, revenge. See, I tracked him during my off hours. Chris, by yourself? Ray, oh no, no, no. I took my 12 gauge with me. I tracked him and I found him. I leveled off that shotgun right in his chest, Spanky. Guess what happened next? Chris, should you be telling me this? Ray, close. I pulled the trigger. Chris, that's all real exciting and everything, but listen, um, I've got a midterm. Ray, I wrapped his body in a plastic bag. I buried him in a vacant lot, the lot right behind your girlfriend's sorority. Of course, it isn't a vacant lot anymore. Now the housemother's cottage is sitting right on top of it. Chris, look, detective, I don't mean to be rude or anything, but other than just kind of wanting to confess to murder, is there a point to this story? Ray, Spanky, that's exactly what I'm trying to figure out. So here we learn that the girl murdered from the opening scene is Pam, which is actually Ray's high school sweetheart, and that he's the police officer from that opening scene. And then we learn that he took revenge on the guy that actually killed her. Last, I'm actually going to go over the ending. And I just want to say that the version I watched was actually the director's cut. So I know that there, this movie has more than one ending. But of course, I'm going to be discussing the ending that I saw, which is from the director's cut. So Chris and Ray um, basically decide to take the alien invasion into their own hands and put a stop to it. So Chris goes to Ray's after listening to JC's recording he finds in his room and finding JC dead. And he explains to Ray basically what's going on. He tells Ray that um, these are alien parasites. They climb in through your mouth. They lay eggs in your brain where they incubate until they are ready to hatch and that heat kills them. So they go and they grab a flamethrower and guns and are off to the sorority house. Um, 
they fight off the slugs and then, you know, well, they're fighting the slugs and then they find out that they're all kind of converse, kind of converging in the basement. And Chris and Cynthia actually go into the basement um, to, you know, kill them off where they find Ray with a can of gasoline. He actually has duct tape over his mouth. Ray, no, no, get out. Get out of here. Take her and get out. Get the hell out of here. And then Chris is trying to turn on the flamethrower. And he goes, Chris says, wonderful. And then Ray, like, takes the duct tape off. A slug tries to go into his mouth. He catches it. Ray, don't even think about it, you little son of a bitch. And then he looks at Chris and goes, 20, 19, 18, 17. Chris and Cynthia start to leave the basement. 16. As Chris and Cynthia run out of the sorority, Chris continues this countdown. 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. We go back to Ray in the basement and he's turning on gas and he says 5, 4, 3, 2. And then we're back to Chris and they're stand uh, a bunch of people are standing, um, staring at the sorority. And Chris says, 1, detective, thrill me. And then you see Ray light up his lighter and the entire sorority house goes up in flames. Like, it, kaboom, you know, he blows up the sorority house, sacrificing himself. After that, we do see that, like, we see Ray, um, Detective Ray's, like, burnt body. His corpse is, like, walking into the road, still has a cigarette lit in his mouth, where he falls and let loose some slugs, which actually head into the cemetery. And then we see the alien ship, like, above flashing a light looking for the alien slugs but the whole point i'm trying to get at or get across is the idea that um ray sacrificed himself in order to save everyone from the you know alien slug brain parasite invasion so now let's let's talk about ray ray is a character filled with not only grief but also guilt like he not only lost his high school sweetheart to another guy but he actually lost her like being the one to find her dead body so not only is his heart filled with grief of losing Pam, but he also feels guilty that he wasn't able to save her. You know, if they were still together, not breaking up, would she still be alive? When he found Pam and Johnny at Lover's Lane, if he was a little more persistent, making sure that they left, would she still be alive? If he found the car, got there sooner, would she still be alive? These are all questions that still haunt Ray. So Ray tries to basically like suppress his feelings by, you know, drinking. You know, he lives alone because he was never, um, sorry, he was never able to get over Pam, like preventing him from opening himself up to another person. He uses humor and sarcasm as a coping mechanism to keep him from basically showing any emotions. You know, he's got this wall up. He's standoffish. He's, you know, he's guarded, defensive. And all of this is because of the guilt he's been carrying with him for almost 30 years. So when he actually opens up to Chris, telling him about how he took revenge on the axe murder by killing him and burying him, this is kind of the first time you really see Ray break down his wall and show emotions. And I believe that when Ray actually like killed or sought revenge against the one who killed Pam, this revenge that he took, this was supposed to make him feel better. Like, this feeling of killing that person, that was going to make up for the guilt and grief he was feeling. You know, I'm going to seek revenge. This is going to take care of the problem. I'm going to feel better after this. But it didn't. Instead, he had to hold on to this dirty little secret along with the grief and guilt he's already, you know, trying to suppress. You know, so he's trying to suppress all this for close to 30 years. 
And that, that takes a toll on a person. You know, drinking didn't make it go away. Pushing people didn't make it go away. Not letting anyone get close to him, that didn't make it go away. Trying to repress his feelings and emotions, that didn't make it go away. So this is a man who, like I said, he's held on to not only this dirty little secret that he thought would help him get over, you know, the death of Pam, he's holding on to all this guilt and grief, you know, the grief of losing her and the guilt of not being able to save her, which is why I believe, you know, Ray ended up sacrificing himself in the end. Like in his mind, Ray's thinking, I, you know, he wasn't able to save Pam, but he can save others. He can make sure these alien slug brain parasites don't hurt anyone else and don't kill anyone else and don't take over the world. For Ray, this is how he needed to kind of get over the last 27 years. This is how he needed to basically save himself from all the guilt and grief that's in his heart and that empty feeling, the revenge kind of left him. So that's what I'm trying to say. Like Ray's sacrifice was basically him saying, I couldn't save Pam, but I can save them. So Ray, for me, is the most complex character in this movie with such a character arc. This movie really is like his story and his journey from feelings lost, repressing himself to like finally opening up to someone to making it up, you know, making up Pam's death by sacrificing himself. You know, that's kind of what the whole movie for me is really about is Ray's character, his character arc his story, his journey going from one type of person to opening up to sacrificing himself, you know, in order to get over the guilt and grief within his heart and the revenge that didn't help him get over anything. In the end, he sacrifices himself to help, not only help him, I think it was, like I said, it, the whole reason he sacrificed himself was because he couldn't save Pam, but he can save other people. So that's the whole thing is that this movie really is um, Detective Ray Cameron's story. It's his journey. And Tom Atkins was just wonderful and completely amazing in this part. I couldn't even imagine anyone else playing this part. Like he plays all these emotions beautifully and he is just so believable as Detective Ray Cameron. So Tom Atkins just blew this performance like out of the water. He was just absolutely amazing in this movie. So now I'm going to move on to my reviews. Full Circle says, Enter the legend himself, Tom Atkins, as Detective Ray Cameron. This man can act. Although most campy B-movies delight in the absurdity of their premises, rarely do we ever see charismatic performances from them. Instead, you might find actors as wooden as tree trunks, but not with Atkins. He does not give his role the sort of impression that he is in on the joke. Sure, he has his one-liners, but he does not let them define him, and we soon come to care for him in ways that you may not find in other smug and iconic flicks. Basement Rejects say, Night of the Creeps is an entertaining film. It isn't the best film in the world, but I like its honest effort to try to be different. The rabid fans have often clamored for a sequel. One ending has the dog continuing the infection, but the creepier ending has the creeps reaching the cemetery and the return of the aliens. A sequel might be fun. Thrill me. So overall, this movie is a fun romp in 80s cheesy goodness that pays homage to the horror movies that came before it in the style of a good old 50s B-flick. This movie is entertaining, funny, and at times hits you right in the feels. Think JC's death and Ray's confession. The kills aren't over the top and there really isn't much gore, but they're amusing to watch. 
Tom Atkins shines in this movie. And rumor has it, he has stated that this was his favorite movie to be in. And it shows. He plays the part of Ray perfectly. His emotional range in this movie and going from sarcastic tough guy to soft confessing guy are done beautifully. For myself, this is one of my favorite Tom Atkins performances. Aside from Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. If you haven't seen this awesome 80s nostalgia of a movie, you need to. For Tom Atkins' performance alone, you need to see this movie. Without this movie, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have the movie Slither. So even though it's a campy movie, it has been inspiration for later horror movies. So you gotta see it. This movie doesn't take itself seriously, and neither should you. So just go in with an open mind and just have fun with it. Thrill me. Anyways, I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you for joining me here on Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. Again, I'm your host, Sarah Sin. Thank you for sticking around as I discuss horror history, psychology, and mental health within horror movies. Hope you enjoyed the show. Again, thank you for listening. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a horror movie out there for everyone to enjoy. So thank you.